Blog Talk Radio. Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Well, once again, we're doing a show that I like to refer to as a Q&A show. And this turns out to be one of the more favorite shows that we do with our audience. And I've asked my dear friend and hunting dog slash posse elite athlete, Miguel Medina, to come on and help me field some of these questions. And a lot of them were questions that were asked of some of the clients that he's dealing with with the anti camp so yes. say hello brother hola amigos yeah we got we got tons of good questions today quite a few of them from from team medina i'm really i'm always really proud of these guys just having the best questions so yeah it done yep 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 some good stuff and um i i love it because you know commonly when you do these shows you, you feel like you're sitting in a room by yourself which is commonly what i'm doing and um but when people are interacting, it's a lot of fun, you know. You get you get in their heads, and they, they got questions, which almost ensures that they're going to end up um, listening to what the heck we had to say about it, right? There you go, exactly. Plus, you kind of get two two perspectives, two sides of the coin. You got the you got the science and the lab going behind you. I just got the the time on feet going behind me, and the uh, using personal experience with mistakes to to fix that. So. Well, you know, since you brought that up. I think it's important to note that I'm not an expert on all these different aspects of training, and for me to suggest that I am is really ridiculous. Um, a lot of these things I, I have a lot of experience with, and as you suggested, because I do function in a lab and I've been doing clinical analysis on athletes for way, way too long to even try to put a number on it. Um, I, I do have some insight, but there are some things that are challenging questions, and you know, it becomes a function of, who you ask, and, and even in the in the clinical world, you know, you might get 15 different opinions about the same question. So we'll give it a shot. We'll try to be honest, and we'll try not to, you know, bullshit people. We'll try to be straight up and, and try to answer the questions. But aside from that, um, we'll give it a go. So Get it done. Yeah, what do you think? Well, let's pick one. Give, give me a good question. And hey. If you could preface it by uh, uh, naming the person that asked the question to. Oh man! All right. Well, let me let me bring that back up then, because I had it uh, pointed out in a in a different little spot. All right. Well, may, maybe we could do it this way. If you just ask the question, I, I might have it written down already. As far as the name is concerned. All right. Yeah. Then in that case, uh, I think I think we'll start kind of with a little a little easy sort of general question. That since championships are closing in, you know, lots of long races up ahead. How much work should be spent on miles that are like at an aerobic pace versus doing anaerobic intervals? And I think was that Nathan who asked that? I'm not, I'm not quite sure who asked that. All right. Well, I don't have that question on my list, so I don't know. But but let me okay. just let me offer you this. Whenever I get questions like that, 
it's it's like uh, it's difficult to give a nice, clean, intelligent answer to it because my first thought is is that if you don't already know where you were headed when you got this deep into training, you already blew it. And I don't mean to sound smug about it, but I like people to know where they're headed. And this is a function of periodization training. You should be looking at building your volume, building your intensity, uh, working all the aspects of your training on a very, I don't want to say tight schedule, but a pretty uniform schedule. So you're not going to be surprised. You don't want to get up close to a, a big event or a race and be wondering whether you put in enough volume or whether you put in enough intensity or you put enough hill training in. Um, so it's a tough question to answer. I mean, for me to go down that road with them would almost feed the monster that I'm I'm fearing here. Does that make any sense? It does. I think it makes perfect sense. No, I, I I definitely think, I mean, this is kind of, this is a question from one of my athletes, so I can say that they are following the periodized plan based on, on going with some of the longer distance stuff that, that he's asking about, like doing beasts, ultra beasts, world's toughest, you know, all the, all the big boy races. And so at this point, I mean, we are putting in a lot more, we're, we're because of the, the focus in the program, it's a lot more like volume still. Right. And, the intervals are, are kind of being peppered in there. But for the most part, because of this distance, I mean, you got to make sure to have that time on feed in from the get-go. But the difference is the intensity that you're right. getting that time on feed in. You know? Well, I mean, so, like, yeah. So not to cut you off, but let me, let me just kind of give this a little bit more energy than I than I seem like I just pushed it off. <laughs> okay. So first of all, I you know me. I like to, to begin everything with assessments. I like to know, A, when you start talking about developing your aerobic potential, where in fact are you aerobic from an intensity perspective? What heart rate are you able to push in order to say that you're still aerobic? And then I love to pepper my training with a lot of time trials. And the time trials speak volumes to you over time, letting you know what you can or cannot get away with. I can look at somebody's training and look at the depth of their aerobic conditioning and through the time trials, make decisions as to whether they've got enough of that going on and whether they can take on more intensity or the intensity is starting to, to work its way into their aerobic potential and it's causing havoc. So we can see what's happening because we learn from the gate what these numbers look like and what they mean to someone. So, yeah. uh, for example, let's just say that today was the first day of training and you come in, and we do testing, and we find that your threshold, and let's call it your aerobic threshold. I don't like to talk in terms of anaerobic threshold, but just say the point where it's the top end of your aerobic base heart rate was 150 beats per minute. I'm just throwing yeah. something out there, okay? Yeah. And then you set about peppering your workouts with about 70% of the training dedicated to aerobic conditioning. And then you're doing all these other little bits that are helping to support your efforts, the motor skill work that I'm really keen on. You're doing your little lactate tolerance training. You're doing the, the hill repeats. You're doing all the stuff. But commonly you're, you're dedicating the majority of your work to aerobic conditioning because everybody knows that's, you know, the important thing, right? Yeah. And so we start to learn through the, the time trials that, hey, you know, it used to be that for you to run like a 5K at that heart rate, it used to yield a 20-minute time. 
And now, at the same heart rate, you're able to do it in 18 minutes or 17.5 or something like that. That's at a the same heart rate. Yeah, and that's a pretty clear indication that things are going really, really well. And then when that starts to happen, you're able to sacrifice some of that volume of that low-intensity work and start shoving it into some more high-intensity work. But I really like to use these time trials to help to tell me what to do, when to do it, and what I can get away with and what I can't. So, um, for example, I really have an issue with, you know, I've worked with marathoners for years, and, you know, when somebody comes up to me and says, well, I hope I can do X, or I, I really hope I can, I'm like, you know what, chance favors the prepared mind. Don't come to me three weeks short of a race and start talking to me about wishing and hoping. You should know this stuff. This, you should be aware of what's happening to you all through your training. And so, you know, again, I'm a geek and I'm starting to get a little fired up, but this is the kind of thing that I that I really take exception to is people just kind of floundering when they get close to race time. So I guess the answer is if you're wearing a heart rate monitor and you've been paying attention to the details and you have a pretty good sense of what is aerobic or anaerobic for you, then you have to start charting your map. And quite frankly, I don't even think it's, think it's too late. You still have time yeah. leading into no, world championships. Six weeks, don't we? Yeah, it's it's enough no. time to make a difference, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, and, and also, like I mean, like you touched on something that that's really important is comparing that whole uh, looking looking at something as simple as a five k or as a two mile or like the fifteen what is it fifteen minutes for fifteen percent and looking at what heart rate you're working at and how how much distance you're covering. I mean, like earlier this year, I was covering you know my average. For a two mile, my pace was maybe about a six, a six ten or something like that. And my heart rate would be sitting at about one fifty. And then by, uh, I don't know, about two months later, I was running closer to about a five fifty mile and same heart rate, you know. And and I was able to kind of observe that over the course of eight weeks that I was training, you know. And and that that nice little jump, if you will, just to kind of let you know when you can you can back off of that of that volume, like you said, and kind of throw in some more of those intervals. Right. Well, I could tell you that um, – what was I going to tell you? <laughs> just had another little mind fart. See what happens? You got you too excited. See what happens? Oh, I, you know, I tested a guy. Um, I'll give him credit. His name is uh, David Sebastian. He came to me. He was here on Monday. Came in from Montreal. Good athlete, strong. And we found – now listen to this. We found that there was about a five beat per minute difference between him being 100% into his sugar stores or sparing 66% of his energy because he was burning fat. Five beats per minute difference. So the difference for him to be between 145 and like 150 is a difference between day and night. So the caloric expense for those two heart rates was not more than about 100 beats or 100 uh, calories apart. So like 1,100 calories at 145 per hour and maybe 1,200 calories. I'm just, I don't remember the details exactly, but I remember how profound it was. But about 100 calories difference, but when he's at 145, 66% of it was coming from his fat stores. And just by pushing up five beats, it was a game changer. He's he's spilling out 1,200 calories of sugar. Huge, huge difference in those outcomes. So, 
Yeah, and you know, and that doesn't happen all the time. Uh, very unique to this individual, and so this is also why it's so difficult to try to guesstimate heart rate responses for training or using these uh, various uh, equations. So, right. you know, while we're on that, there's a couple of questions that I think we're going to kill about three birds with one stone here. Some of these, some of these compartmentalized questions. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, Elijah Markstrom had some really good right. questions. Okay. Yo, Elijah, here it comes. Now, interestingly enough, I, I tested Elijah, good athlete, strong athlete, tested him uh, at the uh, Savage Barn about three weeks ago, I think it was. And nice. so he's got some questions. So one of the questions he asked is, is I'm going to read it just like he wrote it. He goes, okay, so I've heard a lot about this 80-20 principle, and people often say the volume has to be huge, 20 to 24 hours a week. Can the 80-20 principle be applied to a six- to eight-hour training week for running, or is it better to favor intensity, assuming the race is a one- to two-hour OCR event? So that's a pretty good question. And, and oh. Yeah, and first of all, the, the principle he's referring to, 80-20, was something that was coined by a, a physiologist out of uh, uh, Norway, Sweden, some Scandinavian country like that. His name is Steven Seiler. Oh. And Steven Seiler, you know, did a ton of research and was looking at what a lot of the elite athletes in endurance sports were doing in respect to their training. And it just turns out that they were spending about 80% of their training aerobically and about 20% was dedicated to intensity. And my dear friend Matt Fitzgerald built on that, actually wrote a book on it. And, you know, he is essentially chasing down the same principles. What's really interesting is that my first book I wrote, most of the training that I would dictate to people, actually in my in the current book, I, I talk about 80-20 initially, and then we, we move on to diff different ratios based on where you are time and space. But um, I guess to get cut to the chase and answer the question, I don't think it, you by no means do you need to be 20 hours a week in order to get value from this type of training. It may very well be that when you're looking at the Kenyans and the Ethiopians that are out there running up and down the mountains, their volume is huge. They're probably doing that kind of thing. And maybe somebody said, well, because they're doing it, that's got to be that way. Otherwise, it's no value to you. Yeah, the golden ticket. But I will say this. The guys that put in the most amount of volume get the greatest return for their investment sooner. That's something I'm absolutely going to hang my hat on because I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen a couple different times. Uh, I had a client in particular that was just fresh off of running the Boston Marathon. Uh, he's about a 250 marathoner, and I found his threshold at about 140 beats per minute, and he wanted to run at 160 because that's what, what he's used to, and he would yeah. blow up. He would always blow yeah. up, and clearly because absolutely. yeah, he was totally anaerobic all the time. Um, but anyway, so we made a deal, and I said, I want you to run 80% of your training aerobically, and 20% we're going to do skill work in you know, different intensities. And he, his question to me was, well, if I'm going to do that, does it matter how much I run? And I know what he was getting at, because it was too easy for him to run at 140. It felt kind of weak. Yeah, so he wanted to 
Yeah, so he ended up doing a lot of training. So he was getting oh, upwards of 14 hours a week of running. Now, you keep in mind, he's not an OCR guy. It's all running. Yeah. And uh, in three weeks, we did a time trial. And his initial time trial, after we tested him, was 8.30 pace for one mile at 140 beats per minute. Okay. In three weeks, it was a 6.30 pace. Same heart rate. Same heart rate. And I had 20 people at the track that I had tested. I was I was coaching a, a group. And they are all with their jaws on the ground. They could not believe how much difference it made. But the biggest difference between him and everyone else that was at that track was the, the volume he was doing. Yeah. And the same thing applies for, you know, you know Nicodemus Holland, the same thing with him. He got some profound results from the work we did because of the, the sheer volume that he was putting in. It really, really made a big difference for him. So I guess, um, no, you don't have to go 20 hours. That's my take. And six to eight hours of training, absolutely, that'll be beneficial. And um, and I think it's plenty. Six to eight hours worth of running a week is going to get you through a one- or two-hour OCR event. That should, that should get it done. Especially guys like... Uh, uh, Elijah, you know, six, eight hours worth of running for him, even when he's aerobic, is a lot of running. So, yeah. You know. Well, not only that, but also, I mean, like, you know, people have jobs and real life to deal with besides the life outside of racing, you know. So, I mean, it's it's really tough. I mean, the idea, I remember, um, you know, last year before championships and all that stuff, that was the average. Like, pretty much every day was four to five hours of training, and it was just kind of, it it, it gets a little emotionally and, and mentally exhausting. I mean, physically you feel fine, but it's, it's definitely really hard to put that kind of volume in, you know? So six to eight hours is, is pretty, pretty reasonable to put in. You can make, you can definitely get some quality out of it. And, well, it's, and it's, it's all relative, of, right? It's yeah. all relative. You got a guy that can run aerobically at a seven minute pace, right? The, the number of miles he gets an hour is, is a lot. He gets a lot of miles in. So, you know, getting close to 45, 50 miles a week when they're chumming along at an aerobic pace. So, yeah, yeah. and then you add in some quality behind that, and you you got yourself a pretty decent program. Now, I, I don't want to give anybody creative license and, and have them back off of their training if they were doing more, but um, I, I, I'm just saying that I could see that very reasonably happening. Um, so that was part of the question. And the other question he asked that I thought was really, really good, he actually had a couple good questions, so we're going to play with this a little bit. All right. And one I think you're going to love. All right. Um, he asked that, can you move your lactate threshold to a higher heart rate, and if so, how? Well, first of all, if you can't move your lactate threshold, I need to go downstairs and put a for sale sign on my metabolic equipment because there's no sense in showing somebody what their threshold is unless we can do something about it, right? You can absolutely influence your threshold. It's a function of the way you're training. So the principal means for developing a higher threshold is spending more time aerobically. The problem with spending a lot of time aerobically, even though you may encourage your heart rate to be higher and be aerobic still, you may sacrifice some of your fitness. You may f sacrifice some of your power, and you may yeah. even sacrifice some of your speed. Initially. Well, I think you could do it across the board if you if you spend too much time being aerobic. You have to pepper the workouts with some uh, intensity training and skill work. 
Yeah. So, um, and incidentally, moving your threshold is uh, we do lactate tolerance training. Lactate tolerance training is about getting your body to become more capable of dealing with the ensuing production of lactate. And if you do a nice job with intervals like that, the uh, the one-two punch is the aerobic conditioning with decent lactate tolerance type intervals does a really nice job of moving your threshold. And again, going back to these time trials, if you are paying attention to the outcome of your time trials and you've been doing something that's causing your threshold to dump, it's evident. And the same token, if things are improving, it's evident. So you can almost start to become very intuitive about what to do with your training relative to these time trials. And that's kind of the whole point of using the VO2 max and stuff too, right? Because Absolutely. From there, that's, that's exactly what, what your lactate yeah. threshold is, right? Yeah. If you're not going to use that information, there's no sense in spending the money to come see me. Because I, I can bet you dollars to donuts, if you do the right thing with the heart rate, you're going you're gonna to see some, some serious improvements in the way you're, you're training and racing. Yeah, yeah, Okay, definitely. so here's the other one I got for you. I think you're going to love right. this, okay? Right, and, right. and I know you read this because this was kind of a thread that was being pitched around on the social media recently. And uh, my boy Ryan Atkins, I think, is the one that started this. But uh, this, right. this whole thing about um, should they get rid of the spear and burpees and Spartan race? Uh, I'm going to let you take that first. <laughs> That's what, look, 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 look. That's why it's a Spartan race, because there is a spear throw, because there are burpees, all right? Like, there are other races. If you don't want it, then there's other races. But, I mean, I get I, I get the frustration, especially because Ryan is, is you know, on on the top, flat out. Like, I get it. I totally get it. And, the, and what happened with Ryan with the whole rope climb situation was, like, a shame. But hopefully now there's precedence, which on the subject – I will be at Breckenridge as a marshal. Uh, my ankle has me out for the rest of the season, so I'm going to be there as a marshal, and I will be very studied up on the rules to make sure that there's no BS regarding anything like that, so that that way, you know, we don't have any unnecessary DQs. That, but anyways, um, look, man. I mean, from my point of view, I think there's nothing wrong with a spear throw. I think there's nothing wrong with burpees. Like, screw it. That's what it is. That's 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 what makes Spartan Spartan. I don't care what you say. Like spear, burpees, and crazy terrain. That makes a Spartan race a Spartan. Okay, so yeah, can we just touch on this, um, whether it was a good call or not a good call? Oh, man. I mean, and I have to tell you, I love Ryan. He's a good guy. We've been friends for a while now. And uh, he blew it, okay? Just plain and simple. He blew it. And you know, the, the, the DQ was called for. And I realize that there's occasion where there are guys that will get cheated out of something. That's going to happen in every sport. That happens in tennis. That happens all the time. Now, changing the game is not for the athletes to make decision over. Athletes show up, do the race, and take it as it comes, and may the best man win. Which is pretty much what we always do. Yeah, and I got to tell you, you know me, I I'm not about to go out and do an obstacle course race, but I freaking love that spear. It's a fun thing. It's, it's, <laughs> some people think it's gimmicky. It's fun. Like it sucks. Look, I my first twelve races, I sucked at the spear throw. I missed I missed a shot at podium in like top five, like twelve races in a row. It totally sucked. But eventually, I got it, you know, and like 
you, man. Like, just practice it a couple times a day or a hundred times a day, whatever it takes for you. And like, it's it's fun. It, it's it's a freaking Spartan race. Have you ever seen three hundred? Have you read Frank Miller's three hundred? Like, it's it's what it is. You know, it's like, I mean. I could just as easily make the argument than like why a Spartan putting a, a gun, a laser gun that you got to shoot at a target at a military sprint or whatever, or military super. Like, screw it, just do it. Just it's an obstacle. It right. is what it is. It's an obstacle. Much yeah. like, and and don't get me wrong. Like I like the way that, for example, Battle Frog does it with with bands over burpees or whatever, you know, and that you have to complete the obstacle. Like I think that's cool too. I mean, I don't. I think I think that variety is the spice of life. So whether it's bands in, instead of uh, burpees or if it's burpees instead of bands, whatever. I'll you know show up to the race, have a good time, enjoy it, run your heart and soul out, and, and go play. Yeah, right. Well, again, I gotta I gotta share this story. Well, you were there. You were there when we were up at the Savage Barn. You know, I, I don't know. A couple of weeks beforehand, we were watching this NBC thing on TV, and these guys throwing the spear, and it's like all over the place. And I'm like <laughs> making no- noises, and my wife's going, "Well, you can't do it." I'm going, "What do you mean I can't do it?" She goes, "Well, you can't do. It. When have you thrown a spear?" And I could not wait to throw the freaking spear. And we got up to the Savage Bar, and all those spears were st- <laughs> all those all those spears were sticking in that uh, that hay bale, and the targets were there. It was just prime for me. And I got five for five. I mean, I hadn't thrown a spear in my life. Never throw right. a spear. Now you just got to go do it in a race. You know? Yeah, well, that, think, it's the I rest think, of it. I think on the subject of spears, it'd be really cool if Spartan would get creative with it and, like, maybe, you know, put a put a, a hay bale on, like, something that kind of sways from side to side or something like that or maybe have, like, multiple spear throws in a row. I've always kind of dreamed about having to do that or having to throw your spear. I guess there is, this would be a liability issue, but how cool would it be to have to, like, throw a spear from a jumping position or something crazy like that, you know, like get, get real Hollywood with it. But, How about throw the but, spear at the guy in front of you? Well, I mean, yeah, that too, as long as it's like a more of a pugil spear. <laughs> I mean, we don't necessarily need to kill anybody. I'm kidding. Know. I'm kidding. All right. So, okay. We beat that to death. Let, let's we move did. on here. Um, Dead horse. Uh, okay. So since we're on me for a second, let, let's, this was an interesting question. And it's it's interesting because I don't think anybody's ever asked me this before. And this is Jack Bauer, okay? You know Jack, right? From Texas, right? Yes, sir. So Jack yes. said, listen to what he says. This is uh, you're gonna love this. Jack right. says, if OCR was around when you were in peak triathlon shape, how good do you think you'd have been if you focused solely on OCR back then? So he's asking Ooh. me this question, right? You're, with your mustache? Yeah, with my porn stash? Yeah. All right, so, you know, let, let's be real. I mean, here I am today, 63 years old, fat, out of shape, and, you know, most of my brethren in this sport have no idea who I was, when I was, and I don't talk about it a lot, and, and I, quite frankly, I don't think there was a lot to talk about. I was in good shape, but my in my heyday, in my peak, when I was running around about 32 years old or so, I carried myself pretty well. I, you know, I, I rolled around about 190 pounds, pretty good strength. So, I, yeah, back then I was putting on these these events. You know, I put on the first pro triathlon for CBS Sports, and I remember sitting there with my cadre, you know, at the at the uh, the dinner, the award ceremony dinner. Dave Scott and all these guys were up, you know, the studs that were winning these races were up on the podium. And I looked at my guy and says, you know something? 
I said, I can go up there and throw all of these guys off the stage right now because the difference between their builds in that sport was such. I mean, they were great athletes, don't get me wrong, but they weren't going to stand up with me in a fist fight. I mean, I knew this to be true. And I look at Spartan racing as being far more akin to my capacities back in the day than just getting up and trying to outrun somebody. Now, I mean, I was able to throw down six-minute miles and, and that type of thing for pretty good distances. Um, you know, for a big guy, I wasn't like hunter fast, but I was in pretty good shape. So I really don't know. But I, I could tell you that had it been back then, I would have dug it. It would have been like right up in my wheelhouse because it would have been a blast. Oh yeah, it would have been great for me because uh, you know I brought the strong component to the table. I used to make jokes about. You know, you got to realize you're kind of gutsy, you're young, and back in the day, you never know. I mean, but I, I would say, you know what? I want to be able, my, my aspiration was, I want to be able to run 10 miles. And when I get 10 miles deep, if I had to, I can fight. You know, I'm not like some guy that's like 135 pounds and he could kill it for, for 10 miles. And then when he gets to to the fight, he's, he, he needs to go somewhere else because he's not going to be able to bring it. So uh, I don't know, it's kind of macho talking, but it, it, the truth of the matter is I've always considered, you know, back in the day to be f- relatively viral, tough. Yeah. And so this would have been right up in my wheelhouse. Um, what I won, would I have won an age group division, you know, that I'm not going to say that. Um, but I could just tell you that I would have dug the crap out of it. I would have really enjoyed having a chance to be in my heyday and be in the sport. You would have been you have been competitive. Don't don't sell yourself short. Well, I'm not trying to sell myself short. I just you know for me to say yeah, I would have been crushing. I would have been kicking everybody's butt. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that. I mean, but I I could tell you I would have dug it. I would have dug yeah, it. Probably. Yeah. It probably would have been a little more fun in the '70s in terms of not having to put up with some of the liability BS. You know. Like, yeah, and for yeah. me, get you know, I used to make jokes about you could do anything you want to me for 24 hours, but once I put my head down and go to sleep. I'm not coming back tomorrow, you know. <laughs> but so I was strong. I was strong enough to th- to go long, and and I could I could do the thing I needed to do. But um, I, I'm not one of these day after day guys. I couldn't do that. So for whatever yeah. it's worth, there you go, Jack. There's your answer. Is, I got a I got a good question. If you'll let me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this one this one was pretty good. It was from one of my clients. Um, one of my awesome athletes. He was asking about a way to balance strength and running and training because. You know, uh, it's always a problem doing OCR. So, you know, the most at this point, uh, focus has been mostly on running uh, because I was a weak point getting ready for an ultra beast. And this past weekend, you know, had great results, was really happy with it, but noticed that he was struggling with his sled pull and his hercules, which is something that he usually blows through, you know. And then uh, the follow-up question to that was what, in, in my personal experience, so I guess I can answer this afterwards, um, what separates the elite athletes from the aspiring and would love to hear a personal story, which I would rather, that, 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 that's a little long. But anyways, um, this, this one I thought was great because, you know, we definitely run into this issue. I've ran into this issue personally in the past where, you know, you have to kind of balance your, your strength versus running and training. And I, I think a big part of it is definitely kind of realizing if there's a certain point where, you only need so much strength, you know, like, I don't know, you don't really need to deadlift 500 pounds to be a good obstacle racer, but it helps if you can deadlift at least 300 pounds or something along those lines. How, how would you, how would you go by answering this guy? Well, he's, he's touched on something that is basically the holy grail of the sport. It's, it's a function of your strength to weight ratio. 
and realizing that, and everybody agrees that to win OCR, you have to be able to run. Yeah. And being able to run is contrary to being able to be strong. It's very difficult to be really, really strong and really, really enduring because they're, they're, they're polar opposite functionalities, right? You know, the more muscle you put on, the slower you're going to be. The yeah. less muscle you have, the less strength you're going to have. And yeah. so you, everybody's got to strike a balance. And, and, you know, this is something that, you know, Hunter and I have messed with a lot because, you know, here's a big boy, and his, his pitfall for the longest time has been trying to be able to carry that speed up 14 miles or so anything short of 10 miles and, and he's he's the guy uh, and, the, and the weight's not going to get in the way for him and the advantage for him being strong was that he can generally you know muscle through most of the carries and, and the hercoist and things like that and and just blow the doors off most everybody so trying to feather the weight down to be a good runner for long distances while maintaining weight it's just something you got to mess around with. And yeah. I, I think that the, the big thing is really understanding your metabolic structure. Are you carrying any excess baggage? Keep the lean weight and get rid of the fat weight. So you're not necessarily sacrificing muscle when you're dropping weight. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's starting to get interesting. When you start putting a lot of volume on and you're not keeping up with the nutrition, then you could be sacrificing your lean weight in order to provide for the energy needs and demands of the amount of volume you're putting in. And yeah. w when your body is short on sugar, it'll build it. And the way it builds it is by scavenging off muscle. So when you start thinking in terms of getting leaner and quicker, it's generally a function of you getting lighter. But if you're sacrificing muscle in order to get that done, then you're doing yourself a disservice. And it's so, go ahead. I was going to say so a big part of it really comes down to one like you said kind of sort of finding that that sweet spot if you will between strength and endurance or speed if you will and then also really getting down and just looking at looking at the numbers when it comes to nutrition and realizing like you said where that excess baggage is and how to get rid of it. It's interesting that we're talking about this because as you know and I don't want this to sound like an infomercial but it's just, this is what I do. This is why I do what I do. And here are the questions that are burning that are relative to the types of things that I look at. I've been very vocal these days about the importance of having a resting metabolic assessment done. And a guy looks in the mirror and he's shredded and he goes, eh, yeah, I don't need to do that. I, I, I don't have any problem with my weight. Well, you get really comfortable living in your skin and you don't even know that behind the scenes, you're not doing a very good job keeping up with the demands that you're, uh, your energy demands. And commonly, I'll have guys be blown away by the number of calories that they really should be eating, but what they've gotten really used to not getting. And appearance sake, they don't really look much different, but their strength will suffer. And when you start noticing you can't do the lifts you used to do, that means your muscle mass or your strength is falling away. And it could very well be that the loss of weight is coming from your lean weight. And certainly you're going to have to sacrifice some of it in order to get lighter. But you don't want that to be the principal loss that you have. So getting tighter on your nutrition is probably the most important element in trying to balance your strength to your speed. How's that for an answer? I think that's solid. 
That's, I mean, well, that's why we're doing these tests these days, right? What are, what's the website? Naturalrunningcoach.net. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we might as well just go full bore into that one and just say it. Well, you, l- listen, Miguel, you know, you've been with it. You, you know what's going on. So, like, I travel all over the country, and I got people traveling from all over the country to come and see me. And they're all just like one frustration after another with their performances. And they, it's not like they don't have the tools. They just don't have the knowledge. And so what we're doing is we're just imparting the knowledge, and it's making a difference for them. So when we show up in Killington, Vermont, and some, and I, by the way, I browbeat a couple pros that live in that area just, yeah. to, just today, saying, look, I'm going to be in your neighborhood, and if you're not going to come, you're about a dumbass. And, I, you know, I didn't quite say that, but, you know, that's what I was leaning towards <laughs> thinking, right? Because... You know, they're complaining about frustrations with their performances and they're not quite getting to the place they'd like to be and they're pulling their hair out about it. Well, we're we're trying to provide some solutions for them and, and it makes a difference. It, it makes a huge difference. Made a difference for you, made a difference for Hunter, made a difference for a lot of the guys who work with. So let's let's get off that. I don't want to sound like a I'm right. trying to answer right. some questions here. I'll 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 be real brief with this one as as far as in my personal experience what separates elite athletes from the aspiring. I'm gonna have to say uh, it's, it's not, it's a combination of things, discipline, but definitely just the amount of time that you're putting into it. I mean, flat out, like, like we were talking about, it sort of reminds me of that, that 80, 20 question that we were saying, and you know, that, that, that 20 hours being necessary. No, but I will say that when I was, when I was at that point, um, last year and earlier this year, you know, where I was putting in 20 hours or more a week, it was, uh, it was definitely, I noticed a massive difference in terms of my performance from one year to the next, in addition, obviously working with you, you know? Um, so I think, I think that's the big difference is the amount of time that you're putting into it and making sure that it's quality and obviously following a, a periodized plan and not just going into the gym every day and beating your head into a wall, hoping to, you know, get a different result after six months. Like there, you need to have a plan period. Just get a plan. Get it's a coach. In, it's interesting that you, you took that, that tack with that question, because when I read the question, my answer was pretty cut and dry. And here's the question. I'm reading it. It says, what separates elite from aspiring athletes? You know what it is? Time. And so I was looking at it from a different perspective because, again, the the complaints of the the elite fields being filled up. So you could be aspiring to be an elite, and you want to get in the elite heat to kind of measure your yardstick against these other guys and come up wanting. But in the meantime, there might have been somebody that could have been there so there's that argument going on right now. So that's kind, ah, okay. of, that's kind of what I thought he was alluding towards. I, I thought he was referring to in terms of like, as far as, in it, as you know, like what I answered. <laughs> well, we answered <laughs> it both ways. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I do think, the, one of the things I do believe is that there should be a qualifying time and you should have a pro card, which is Absolutely. earned by a qualifying time in, Absolutely. Or, in order to get in those heats. So that's kind of, well, that's what came to my mind when he said that. I, I'd like to think that we're on the cusp of that. That's that's just you know, given given a little bit more time, we'll be we'll be right there, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that. But for now, you know, it is what it is. Okay. <sighs> All right. We haven't fun yet. Okay. So here, uh, but let's take this one. This is uh, Chris Polito. All right. Now Chris lives in Arizona, and if you've ever trained in Arizona in the summertime. Yeah, I mean, it's freaking hot there. I used to go there a lot to do uh, metabolic testing for groups uh, twice a year. And every every year in the summer, I'd be there. And I mean to tell you, you got to hide. 
It's so freaking hot. Talk about getting that red blood cell count up. Yeah, and so so the question is this. I live and train at sea level, but it's also 100% or, excuse me, 100 degrees plus in the summertime. So is there any benefit that will come when it comes to racing at elevation? And I guess the answer is no. Those are completely different problems. The way your body responds to heat and your body's response to elevation are completely different things. Now, if it's hot at elevation, obviously being in the heat and conditioned to yep. heat, you'll have an advantage. But if you're going to race at elevation, you better go find some. Well, think, what about those studies? I mean, I guess when you're saying elevation, you mean like above 6,000 feet or what have you, not necessarily like getting vertical as well. Because from what I've been told, I mean, I, I don't I'm I don't know a whole lot know. about this, but I've I've read in some instances that like. You know, if you don't have access to elevation or an elevation tent, then it's not a bad idea to train in like a sauna or something like, or like when it's real hot out because it helps get your red blood cell blood cell count up. Is there any uh, any validity to that or any truth behind that? I don't know. You know, I started this show by telling you I don't have all the answers. All right, I don't know. But I, I when I, I first blush when I look at the problem, I'm thinking that um, the way your body is contending with elevation relative to the way your body contends with heat are two different problems. And quite frankly, if you can if you can deal hours on end in 100 plus degrees, you probably can handle pretty much anything. So okay. so there might be some left-handed compliment to having that type of training. I just don't know what it is. All right. All right. So uh, on the on the problem of heat What's his name? Okay, Dago. 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 Okay. He's got he's got a pretty cool question. Um, I guess you pro- do you want to sum it up or do you want me to just fire it out? Well, you yeah, go ahead and fire the question. All right. So uh, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but it's it's the idea of dealing with heat and pain, and we're not talking about hydration here, but what we're referring to is kind of more so that like his legs are given out after a while. So it's kind of a combination of being on his feet for most of the day, like I'm assuming work wise, ten hours a day in the heat when you know 105 to 110 in the evening sounds like someone else from Arizona or some very 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 hot place. So the ground is is hotter than that, especially something like sand or pavement. It can be like up to 10 or 10 or 15 degrees hotter. Um, and so this guy's feeling pain uh, up on his feet and it, and it gets so hot. His feet get so hot that he has to stop. And so he's trying to figure out what to do, you know, cause he does a lot of his running on the treadmill uh, for that same reason, but shoot, man, it gets, you know, they don't call it a treadmill, but they call it a dreadmill. Right. And, um, and so, you know, he feels like he can't really go running out by himself. Uh, on some of these trails because of safety protocols and what have you, but he's trying to figure it out. What can he do about dealing with this heat, with these hot feet and this hot heat? I want to make sure that I didn't glaze over what you what you just said, but he said he's traveling to Thailand. Oh, right. that's right, yeah. Okay, got, so he, yeah, the, the, yeah, the question was, while he's in Thailand, he's not going to be able to run outside because there are security issues. And yeah, so he's going to have to be indoors the entire time training that he's at Thailand. He didn't say how long he's going to be there for, but he's going to be back two weeks before a beast. And he's asking, what do I do with that? And, you know, I don't tell you, I mean, there's no magic bullet. I mean, you got two weeks left of training. And if you're under trained leading up to an event like that, you're going to pay the consequences for it. But, you know, getting back to the heat, you remember the first question I asked you when we were talking about the question, I said, I was going to look him up to see what he looks like because it sounds to me, 
I said this before you, you, you shared with me that he's a shorter guy, pretty stocky build. And I find a lot of times these shorter, stocky guys don't deal really well with heat. And I don't know why. I mean, I, the dense muscle, I don't know what it is. But if you're gutsy, if you're really willing to push, you can push yourself to a point where the result is pain. You can start really getting into your pain threshold, and, and it becomes a problem. He's talking about his feet getting hot. And uh, he's on his feet for 10 hours a day in this heat. Yeah, your body can only take so much, right? So it starts to complain, and, and what's trying to stop him from doing it is a pain signal. I think, I think uh, for starters, getting getting a good little book that I recently picked up, How to Fix Your Feet, there's a lot of really good tips in there for dealing with different things, everything from heat to taping techniques, not necessarily with, like, rock tape, but just, like, taping in terms of, like, blister prevention and what have you. I think I think that might be a good place to look. There's probably some good suggestions on, on hot and cold. I got I to gotta find the book and, and look for that now because I'm curious about it. Um, but maybe, you know, could it also, could in this case, considering his line of work, I mean, could is there, like, maybe a solution in terms of footwear, like a certain type of material that would be really good in terms of getting rid of heat that he can use or anything well, like that? Well, a lighter shoe clearly would be a better choice than something that's confining. Yeah, well, uh, he's pro- assuming, assuming you know, based on the fact that he's 10 hours a day in the heat, it sounds like he's doing some heavy lifting or heavy work, and which might mean he has to wear steel toe shoes on top of that. Maybe like going with like a wool, like a like a smart wool or like a merino wool or something like that might help too in terms of making sure his feet are getting, you know, kind of getting to breathe a little bit. You talking about the socks? Yeah. I, I love those socks. Merino wool works, it rocks, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's a very individual problem. If we hung out together and we could start to see what's kind of causing the things, we could maybe have a better handle on an answer. But I really, you know, again, this is one of those questions. It's tough to come up with a clean answer on it. All right, I'm going to follow up with him afterwards. Okay, so uh, there was a couple other questions, and Peter, oh, man, I'm going to butcher his name. I don't want to do that. Anyway, Peter had asked a couple of really good questions, and, and one of them was about me. He's trying to get on, get in my shorts a little bit. He said, uh, when did I get into running, and how did I get into coaching? And, I mean, who cares, really, you know? I mean, I, I think I started running, I guess, to give him an answer. I started running in the late 70s. I ran my first marathon in 1981, and, you know, marathons behind that, uh, I've had my share a lot of running events. Uh, I, I came to gravitate towards more of a half marathon distance. I really liked that. I started to hate running on its own, so I started getting into triathlon. My distance of choice was half iron. I did a lot of those. But I just liked breaking things up, so I spent a lot of time in that. And to be honest, getting into coaching, I, I didn't. I never intended to be a coach. And a lot of times I still have a hard time chewing on the word coach when people refer to me. I remember that when we first when I first met you actually. Yeah, and so, like, you know, I mean, I'm more of a consultant and I I guess the reason I say that is because the bulk of my work has been done in a lab where I'm actually analyzing performance and looking at the way people move and you know, I'm not one of those guys that comes up because I ran in college and, you know, uh I, I had that whole thing going on. And quite frankly, I, I don't think they make the best coaches, to be very honest with you. Guys that have, you know, and I, I just caught myself because I think Alberto Salazar is probably one of the best coaches that ever came down the pipe in this country. Um, and But, you know, given that he had set a world record as a marathoner, 
Um, I'm about to chew on my shoe a little bit here, but few and far between. Most most of the guys that are still in the game running don't make good coaches because you know how it is. When you're an athlete, you have to be selfish, and it's really tough to be focused on other folk when you're so focused on yourself. Mm. I'm in a kind of unique position because I'm at this point in my life where I'm not about to go out there and compete. Those days are gone. I'm more interested in, you know, I live vicariously through the people I work with. And for me, it's really a lot of fun to be able to look at the data, see, you know, what I'm dealing with and trying to find solutions to problems. And that evolves into looking at data and helping people with the way they move. I do show up at a track every Tuesday morning with people and have been doing that for the past seven or eight years, I think now. But short of that, I don't physically go out like day after day. My job is to watch people run other than in my lab (laughs) where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being critical of the way they move, things like this. So, I don't even know if the if the shoe fits really when you to talk about coaching. I, I'm not your typical running coach or OCR coach. I'm kind of a weird dude in the middle someplace. So, and then the same same guy asked the question about he and here's what he said. He says, "I know you're a heart rate guy. What are your thoughts on the MAF 180 minus your age method?" Ah. Okay. Now. Anyone that knows me knows that in the absence of being tested clinically, I use this formula as a starting point for aerobic training. I don't get into Primrose Lane with how much above, how much below, adding points, subtracting points relative to your level of fitness or the whole thing. And anyone that has followed me knows that I've actually... Uh, participated in, in a workshop with uh, Phil Maffetone probably 15 years ago, and he's been on my show, and, and we talked about it. I actually apologized to him for all the bad things I said about him. But I think it's a starting point. I, I wouldn't wrap my head around the whole pretense of the way he approaches the training. I don't buy it all. But if you don't know what your aerobic threshold is, it's a really good place to start. It's better than doing the 220 subtract your age or trying to function from maximum heart rate. Those are just bad ideas. So uh, barring all that, I'd say that his formula for starting or kickoff points is a good place to go. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. I mean, like before, before I actually came into the lab and got all the, all the metabolic data and, and the VO2 max and all that stuff, I, I was just basically going off of that. The, what is it? 180 minus your heart rate. Um, but I I don't know I mean it makes sense shoot I I'd, I'd rather <laughs> just go get tested. Like, well it that, helps just, it helps change the game man change yeah. the game. Yep. All right see so what else we got going on here. Uh... This one came up a few times um, as far as how to keep your form good or how to keep your your form you know well during a, a long run and. What do you do when you get tired and your form starts to break down? Should you just should you just quit? Should you should you take a second to kind of stop and collect yourself and uh, maybe figure out how to reset or what? Because sometimes people will definitely struggle about it. And and on top of that, I think it's kind of almost like the answer is in there a little bit, but this isn't always an option. Um, also, after a long time of working on it, still struggle to run around 180. Like it doesn't happen unless there's a metronome going. So. Right. 
he's hopeless, he's screwed. Does he need to run with a metronome for the rest of his life, too? Well, that was Cody Higgs. And Cody came to see me. I love Cody. He's a great guy. Uh, he's done really well. He's getting better, getting stronger. He's got aspiration to go really long. And so, yeah, so the question that I've been looking at, he's talking about any tips on how to maintain form over long, grueling distances. Mm-hmm. You know, any more when you say long, grueling distances, it conjures up all kinds of considerations, right? Yes, I mean, you start asking yourself, are we talking about beyond 24 hours? Are we talking beyond eight hours? Are we talking about being able to support the work after two hours? Yeah, and so, so I guess uh, when you start to notice that your for- form is faltering, it's probably due to the fact that your energy is waning. And if your energy is waning, could very well be that you were you pacing yourself wrong. When you start struggling with your cadence, it's very likely that the fatigue is causing you to overstride. And the overstriding is like one thing begets the next, right? I have people, we talk about it all the time, I have people trying to negotiate with me about their stride frequency. They're going, ah, dude, it was at 160, now I'm at 170. Isn't that good enough for a little while until one day I can do 180? Well, 170 tells me he's overstriding, right? And so I don't don't support that. I want them to run with good form as best they can. The other end of this, uh, a fellow by the name of Rich Rishal, Rich and Emily Rishal, they're in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, by the way, uh, heart goes out to them. They just got swamped, man. That that flooding just just blown through their house. I feel so bad for him. But he had made a comment. I saw it on social media recently. And here's a client I worked with where he had just did his first 50-mile uh, ultra. And he said that when he got deep, when things started to get ugly, and he started to notice that he was having some knee pain, my face came into his head and he started focusing on his cadence and focusing on his form. Pain went away and it may, it helped him to, to carry on and get through the thing and be pretty much unscathed. So I guess it works two ways. I mean, you could find that when things go badly by correcting a lot of the flaws that you have, you may end up getting in a better place. Yeah. Or it could be very well that you're just so shot that you need to focus on getting your energy up. And just, I guess it depends on, the nature of the distance, the, the the gravity of the course that you're running on, and just how much stress your body's taken, because even the best of us fall apart sometime, right? Absolutely. Well, I think I think I know with Cody, you know, the distances are, are usually eight plus hour long races, so it'll be something like a BFX to or an Ultra Beast, which will be between um, you know eight to twelve hours, and then otherwise some of the longer things that might be like you know up to upwards of twenty four hours. I mean, I will say what. What you commented on right now, it reminded me of where I was at last year before World's Toughest, where I was kind of having some a little sensitive knee issue here and there, um, and and you taped me up, which definitely helped bring awareness to the to to my knee. And then from there, just always kind of keeping keeping myself in check, man. You know, keeping that 180 and making sure to not let that arm sway go across my body, and and always trying to to you know quote unquote keep my feet under myself. It it you know, I ran 50 miles, and even though the race didn't go as well as we would have hoped, we uh, I finished that race without being in pain. You know, without having any knee pain, without having any any issues, which I was really happy about in comparison to the year before. I sprained my ankle, you know, 35 miles deep, and then on top of that, it just turned into a into a, a literal and metaphorical shitstorm. So <laughs> it's like I'm really glad that I that I uh, that I've learned my lesson, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, so I got one more. I think this is going to be the one that's going to put the uh, put the thing away. A guy named Tony Miller. I actually worked with Tony a while, and he said, "What are my thoughts on the shoe cue inserts? Have you seen these things?" Oh, what is a shoe cue? Sounds like a well, it's it's an insole, and I when I saw the question, I didn't know what it was either. So I looked it up and I googled it, and sure enough, Brian McKenzie was selling it. Um, oh man, they're they're insoles. They run about thirty nine dollars a pair. And what they're trying to say is they help you to uh, kind of a subtle reminder to get into a natural gait. And they start talking about how it helps to improve the mechanoreceptors under the heel. I don't know. But uh, at the end of the day, looking at it, my first blush is it's a gimmick. Brian's probably getting a fat check to, to talk about it. Good for him. But I uh, I'm just not... I'm just not feeling it. I, I, to be honest with you, if you've got, and I've told people this before, if you've got to stick something in your shoe because things aren't going well, you're probably not wearing the right shoe, quite yeah. frankly. Well, and on, and on top of that, the problem is, is at the end of the day, you. It's not the shoe necessarily. Absolutely right. The way you're moving through time. In That's space. right. Right. <laughs> you know, and since we're talking about that uh, in this insole thing, there was a question about the power meters and running. Yeah. I think it's the holy grail. I think eventually it's going to be a really big deal. The technology is a little spotty right now. They're working at it. And I am sponsored by RPM Squared. And mm-hmm. I think that right now they're closer to having this thing figured out than anybody else. I mean, there's some guys that are tiptoeing into it, but there's a lot of things that are left undone. From a standpoint of data collection, if you're really, really hyper-focused on trying to find out what's happening when you make contact with the ground, where the power is going. RPM Square is the leader in the industry right now. Having said that, the hurdles that I see are separating vertical oscillation or vertical power from moving forward. With moving power. forward what, versus how, so, look, for example, if I jump up and down really hard, I might get good force production, which is going to suggest that I have good power. But if it's wasted going up and down, it's of no value to me. Uh, I want to be able to subtract the vertical power from my forward progress power. When I'm pushing 500 watts that are driving me forward, yahoo, that's a great thing. But if I've got 500 watts and 400 of them is going up and down, that's of no value. (laughs) That's no bueno. So So the technology is... It's out there, and there's three, four companies that are working it. But, again, uh, and I'm not just saying it because they uh, they support me. I actually reached out to them first because I was so curious about the technology. But I think it's going to be a big deal. It was a great big deal for cycling. Cycling was an easier yeah. problem to fix because the bike never leaves the ground, right? Yeah. <laughs> all, of, all of the power that you're getting is moving forward, so it's easy to fix. Anyway, any parting thoughts, Mr. Medina? Parting thoughts. I would love to see some of those athletes that you were talking to on the East Coast come out to Killington to come play on the mountains and, you know, learn some essential data so that they can take their game to the next level. And then otherwise, you know, just run safe, run smart, and train with heart, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, on that note, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Patrick Kitchen, who is helping to host us there at the Cortina Inn, and uh, it's just outside Killington, I guess. I don't know exactly where yeah. it is. 
Yeah, it's it's officially Menden, but it's essentially Killington. Cool little resort there. He's got some really favorable rates. We're going to have a cocktail party Friday night. You know, that's my doing, right? We'll get lubed yeah. up and we'll talk about everything, <laughs> maybe sing some songs. Rec Bag is coming out to, to help us out. Have fun OCR clinic. So we're going to do some overload work on the mountain, man. After doing the clinical stuff, do the testing, do the gate evaluations. It's going to be a hoot. I'm looking forward to it. And just since you suggested I should, I'll, I'll go ahead and say that for those of you that are interested in trying to figure it out, naturalrunningcoach.net. And you just pull on clinics and you'll find us. And just treat this like you guys would uh, would treat a race as far as folks who are interested in it. I mean, I know a ton of times, you know, like money can kind of be an issue as far as being able to get a pl- place to stay and finding a way to get there. You know, luckily, um, Killington is close enough to Rutland. You can fly in. You can take a train in. You can take a bus in. You can drive in and carpool, you know, and same thing with the rooms. You guys can room together. Like, the Cortina is a beautiful spot, and obviously Killington, Vermont, and just Vermont in general is absolutely beautiful. So we're gonna have a good time training. Double occupancy, one hundred nine bucks, fifty bucks yeah. a head, basically to to stay, and you get there. breakfast too. I mean, come on, all the bagels you can eat. Yeah. All right, brother. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Miguel. And uh, you and I will hook up soon. Yes, sir. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.